My name is Hannah Lee and I am the Educational Engagement Intern at the Intercultural Resource Center at George Fox University. This is a recording of a live event that we host every season called Mathetes, in which we organize a panel of students, staff, faculty, and community members to discuss difficult topics. Mathetes allows people to talk about the wide spectrum of understanding and perspective on difficult issues. Panels bring their own thoughts and experiences, and we have a robust conversation. We intentionally choose a variety of panelists to bring their own thoughts and perspectives to the conversation. I would love the opportunity to officially welcome you all here tonight. I know that, you know, what are we in? Like a month 11 into our pandemic, that Zoom fatigue can be a very real thing. So those of you who have chosen to be here towards the end of a day, you know, we are so grateful for your presence and your engagement in all of this. And so, you know, I want to introduce myself to folks who may not know me. My name is Jenny Elsie. I have the privilege of serving as the Dean of Student Success and Equity here at George Fox University. And I also serve as one of two Title IX coordinators on campus. As, as students, those of you who are students here with us, um, if you ever had a question regarding Title uh, IX issues, I would, be the, I would be the person that you would connect with. I've had the privilege of seeing this program, Mathetes, uh, be here at George Fox for the last five years. And for a little bit of history of folks who have not been with us before, Mathetes comes from the Greek word for disciple. And that is, becomes a real key part of what this program is. So while we aim to have, you know, some really good, robust dialogue about hard topics and hard issues, we never want to stray very far from the, the, the hope of this time together is then what shall we do as disciples of Christ? And I think a key part of that is, and this has been one of our philosophies in Mathetes from the very first day is, you know, that to recognize that we are talking about people, not issues. While issues are encompassed in what we're discussing and dialoguing, I think it's important for us to recognize that at the forefront, we're discussing real lives, real lived experiences. And so that hopefully will help frame the way that we approach things that tend to be very difficult and can feel polarizing. We never want folks to forget that these, these issues are connected to real lives and real experiences. So with that, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. I, and again, I think the beauty of this time and space is that we've got lots of different folks joining us, you know, all connected somehow through Fox, but perhaps a little bit even wider than what we've experienced in the past. So again, thank you so much for being here and spending your time. And I'm going to turn this over to our facilitator, Hannah Lee. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Methetes. My name is Hannah, and I am the Educational Engagement Intern here at the Intercultural Resource Center at George Fox. I was thinking about what we wanted to do for this panel, which is, you know, Jenny kind of explained how, how we do Methetes and what it is and what it's for. And ever since the insurrection on the 6th, this obviously seemed to be, you know, kind of a top priority of things we need to talk about as a community, whether it's in the church, whether it's in our local community, whether it's farther than outside of Fox or outside of Newburgh. And so I just kind of wanted to start off by saying that this is going to be a difficult conversation and it requires all of us to humble ourselves. 
You know, we're in a society where we've been conditioned to racism to the point where it's normalized, it's in our heads. So even the most, you know, quote unquote, woke people will find themselves saying things that are offensive or discriminatory. And it's something that we constantly have to check ourselves for and hold ourselves accountable to our friends. And so I just want to say, as we come into this conversation, I want to acknowledge that we come from different walks of life different educational backgrounds, different cultures, and we may have different definitions for some of the words that we're talking about tonight, which is why, you know, that's, it's important to talk about this. What is white supremacy? What does it mean? So I just want to say that, you know, some of the things we say tonight might cause you to recognize some of the subtleties of white supremacy in your own life. And that's really hard to acknowledge and see but it doesn't mean that you're a horrible, horrible person. It just means that you have to be willing to listen and be willing to hear and check yourself. And that's the, that's kind of how, where my heart is tonight, going into this conversation. I'm moderating it, but I'm here to listen and to learn. And so I hope that you will all be willing to do the same thing, knowing that there are things that will be said tonight that might offend you. But I just am asking you to come into this with a spirit of graciousness and humility. So kind of what's on the agenda for tonight is we're going to introduce our panelists. I would recommend that you switch to speaker view so that you can kind of keep up with who's talking. If everyone could stay muted, that would be great. Again, we would love to see your faces if you wanted to turn on your cameras. But we're going to keep we're going to keep everyone muted until we kind of have an audience question and answer time. And that won't come until later into the evening. So for now, please keep yourselves muted. Yes, if you're here for spill credit, I will give you your spill code towards the end around um, 810, 815 before we start questions. If you are having any issues with the Zoom, please direct them to Tosh. He is running all of the technical things this evening. Okay, so let's get started. Like I said, my name is Hannah. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and I am, I'm here to run this thing. So Jeanette, if you wanted to introduce yourself next, kind of who you are, how you're affiliated with Fox, that'd be great. Of course, thank you, Hannah. My name is Jeanette Barton. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and I am a senior interior design student here at Fox. And I also work alongside Hannah at the Intercultural Resource Center. My name is Rory Brown. My pronouns are she, her, hers. I am the student senior class representative here at George Fox University. And Hannah is my best friend and roommate. And I love her so much. My name is Michael Simmons. My pronouns are he, him, his. And I am the graduate admissions counselor here at Portland Seminary, which you may or may not know is connected to George Fox. And um, I also am a spiritual director and uh, I'm an ordained elder in the Free Methodist Church. Hi, I'm Andrea Emerson. My pronouns are she, her, hers. I am a friend and colleague of many Fox alums and staff, but not officially connected with the university. Um, up until about a month ago, I was on staff with a large evangelical college ministry, and I've now transitioned. I do leadership coaching and consulting specifically for women, um, and I live in Southeast Portland where I'm parenting three very small children who are now asleep. I'm Randy Woodley, he, him, his. Uh, I'm the professor of faith and culture at Portland Seminary. I am a United Ketuaban Cherokee Indian. My wife and I also run in Yamhill, not too far from Newburgh, the Elahe Indigenous Center for Earth Justice. 
So those are our five panelists and what they're about. And so what's going to happen next is I'm just going to ask them some questions and we're going to we're going to hear from them. So um, first one, I would like you all to answer. How would you define white supremacy? No one wants to go first. And I understand white supremacy to me is something that I was raised in, but I didn't realize I was raised in it because we didn't have neo-Nazi flags in the house. We didn't have (laughs) anything like that. I went to an all-white church and an all-white school and every one of my friends was white and there wasn't anything weird about that to me. And yeah, so it was something that I was like indoctrinated in and then had to unlearn. And so white supremacy to me, of course, is the radical, like that side of uh, (laughs) um, just like that radical, like white power kind of thing too, but it's also in our everyday spaces that we don't recognize until we're forced to unlearn. And what's the word I'm thinking of? Deconstruct that belief. Yeah, I would say that white supremacy is any belief or action that prioritizes and centers the white experience and white people, white bodies, white beliefs. In the context of the church and Christianity specifically, I would say that white supremacy is the belief that the view of Christ and the view of God through a specifically white lens is the soul and correct view of God. You know, I grew up in Southeast, in the, in the, the Southeast, American Southeast and um, Eastern Tennessee. And I would, I would define white supremacy uh, maybe with this small anecdote. I grew up an hour, two hours from many notable civil rights cities, places where massive events happened, right? During the civil rights movement. I heard almost nothing about that throughout my education throughout uh, conversations with family. In fact, and I've, I've told a number of people on this on this call here, the only thing I knew about MLK uh, had to do with some sort of scandalous situation that had been drummed up by conservative, more conservative voices, I would say white supremacist voices uh, in, in my family, in my community. Um, and uh, so I would define white supremacy uh, in many ways, uh, not simply as, a, as beliefs that are individual, but really a, a way of thinking, right? An orientation uh, that moves us, as Rory mentioned, to, to center whiteness at the exclusion um, of other, other voices. So people have talked about it from a sociological and a psychological sort of perspective. So let me take a historical stab at it. Uh, white supremacy is uh, sort of endemic to the United States of America. It's how America is the posture of America as it began. It was created for really for uh, wealthier uh, landowning white males. It's passed down from the Greeks and the Romans and and through Anglo-Saxonism in England and all of that sort of through a post-enlightenment kibosh comes together and America is created and has never been rooted out of America. And so you, uh, you really don't have a choice if, uh, because this is structured, right? So all the systems, the educational system, the economic system, how you basically operate in your community, your governance, your democracy, all of that has been structured to benefit white people and to otherize uh, people who are not white. 
uh, particularly indigenous people and black people. So I'll start with that. I could echo and just co-sign what everyone else has said. So one one just thing I'd add in, in my experience. So I was an English major in college. Any English major folks out there, you can wave at me. So the required courses for the English major that everyone had to take, you had to take a class on Shakespeare, a class on Chaucer, and a class on Milton. And if you were to read or study any other voices, that was elective. That was on your time. It was not required. And so to me, that's just, that's kind of a a picture of what white supremacy does in a a systemic way, even in an academic setting. It's that the, the stories, perspectives of white male authors were seen as neutral and normal and what everyone should study. And the voices of the Black and Indigenous authors I read uh, were because I chose to take those classes. And that was true of every other student in that program. Our next question is, in what ways is the white American church inherently racist? So we've talked about what white supremacy is. Where do we see it in the church? Where is it there inherently when we're just, that we're completely unaware of? Where are the foundations? So unfortunately, the church is most often a reflection of the culture. And if the culture was built to be white supremacist, then the church is going to most often reflect that, even though it doesn't often know it's reflecting that. So the question is always, there's a lot more to it. There's a dualistic fashion in which churches operate that basically thinks if they think the right thing, it doesn't really matter that they do the right thing. And and that's not really what Jesus taught. But um, but that comes passed down from the Greeks, and this whole thing sort of reeks of a dualism, but I don't think you want me to get into all that right now, so I won't. The church is merely reflecting instead of being prophetic to uh, the culture, and I think it's supposed to be relevant to the culture, but certainly has a prophetic message to the culture. In that way, for example, when Jesus talks about loving your neighbor and love, uh, it's a very simple command. Simply understood, there's nothing complex about that, except for if you don't love everybody the same, then you don't love your neighbor. And and if you love white people and white things more than other people, and not because you hate them, but because you just don't pay attention to their issues, right? You don't pay attention to the things that they want to draw attention to. That's not loving. So, you know, I mean, the, the answer really is found in in love, loving your neighbor. But unfortunately, the church has been too satisfied to, to not actually pay attention to those voices in the past. Um, I'll echo what uh, Dr. Woodley said earlier about the historical foundations of America and as well as the white American church. The fact that the first Christians, the Puritans that came here on the Mayflower came here under the assumption of manifest destiny. They came here under the belief that they were the new Israel, that America, the land was theirs, given to them by God, gifted to them without any regard for the native peoples, the indigenous peoples that were already here. And fast forward to slavery, the church, the white American church as an institution supported slavery until they split and fractured and we know what happened there. And not to mention the segregation that happened that continues to happen between Christians of different ethnic groups and whatnot, specifically, as we talk about the white American church that still exists now. And institutionally, historically, the white American church has been built on 
being white and having an entitlement to land, to other people, to things that are completely antithetical to what Christ told us to do. I grew up with white Jesus. That was, we had pictures of white Jesus, just Jesus was white to me all growing up. And it never occurred to me that that was weird, that Jesus was Middle Eastern, but we always see him as white. And I recently learned that white Jesus came to be, from my understanding, that slave owners would hang pictures of white Jesus in their slave quarters because whiteness was what should be like aspired to. And that blew my mind um, because I grew up in the white church. I grew up with white Jesus and it never occurred to me that we are being raised as small white supremacist Christians that look up to white Jesus and we see Jesus as white. And that becomes like, if Jesus is perfect, Jesus is white, that's what you're, you're going towards. And if you walk into a Sunday, like any church on Sunday and you ask the people in the pews, are you racist or are you white supremacist? Like the, the answer you're going to get is no. Like I love all people. I have, I have a black friend. You're going to hear that. Um, however, they also hesitate when you say, well, do you realize that Jesus was a person of color? Even if you like look in the beginner's Bible, all of the little drawings of the Bible characters are white, except for the very few, like the Samaritan or like Jesus healing someone. Those are people of color, but the Paul and Peter and all that are like drawn as white. I'll just add, you know, two of the terms that have been sticking with me for for a bit now. One would be a theology of supremacy. So how is the American the white American church inherently racist? It's it's so structured not only into our beliefs about people that are not white, but into our very theology and how we think about God. When we talk about, we look at uh, our view of God as being hierarchical uh, male, and then our church reflects that, as, as Randy uh, mentioned. And then there is this, what I, what I would call light supremacy. And so this sense that in order to be whole, in order to be a, a true disciple, in order to be quote unquote saved, we're moving towards lightness. And in, in, in what that gets coded as is whiteness. And, and so we listen to things about our sins being washed and our being white as snow, right? And in what ends up happening because of this theology of supremacy, we end up putting out in front to others, uh, even to God, the things that are supreme, the parts of us, um, this gets into more of a psychological perspective, but I think it, it, it holds true. We put forward what we want, uh, what we deem as acceptable, and we put behind us what is unacceptable. And this, this, it's this theology of supremacy that pushes behind us into our shadow everything, every person that would reveal something about us that is not... Uh, does not fit within this theology of supremacy or this light supremacy, this orientation towards whiteness. Thank you guys for those answers. Michael, I especially love just kind of talking about the more subtlety of the way we talk about just the, the color white in the church. Okay, so my next question is, you know, kind of the way that we've been talking about this has to do with the broader 
white American conservative evangelical church, but I am also interested in hearing your thoughts on where there is where there is still white supremacy and more considerably progressive white Christian spaces. There's, you know, been an uprising of a more progressive type of Christianity in the past couple decades, especially. But as much as that church may think that they're woke, you know, there's also going to be, there's also going to be racism there too. So I would love to hear your thoughts on where the white progressive church has been failing. I'll start out on this one. So there's a couple of things that come to mind. So one, I mean, going back to what, or referring back to something Dr. Woodley said about just the pervasive nature of white supremacy, because it's the bedrock ideology of white folk landing on these shores, that means no space is untouched by it. So there is no like us and them, or we're the ones that have it and they don't. That that kind of othering just leads to the same cycle of nonsense that we're talking that we're talking about tonight. So I just think that's helpful to name. My friend Erna Kim Hackett, who if you don't know her work, check it out. She uh, is currently writing a book about uh, what she calls benevolent white supremacy, which is the particular kind of white supremacy that happens in progressive spaces that I would describe as, it's not the flag waving overt, it has the right words, but there's a refusal to give up two things that I think are required if you want to dismantle white supremacy, and that's power and money. So I think in those spaces, we can talk a certain way, but do our actions reveal that we're actually giving up power following other leaders, specifically Black leaders and Indigenous leaders? And what are we doing with the resources that were the wealth that we've built on the labor of non-white peoples in this country? I think that's where progressive white supremacy, uh, that can play out. White progressives love to talk about how they're not racist, and they really love to read something written by like authors of color and listened to by like black uh, preachers and all of that and then say it all in their own words to show the rest of the progressive Christians in the white church that they're educated and they're woke and they know the thing which continues to progress the issue because white people are still the only people talking um, because you cannot convey black experience as a white person it's still just white people talking and so the progressive church just loves to keep talking as white people and they're like swimming in place they're 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 moving but they're not going anywhere the white progressive church i'd say loves its lackluster blanket statements of being all-inclusive and being all loving of everybody without having anything to show for it i'm thinking of Hillsong specifically and how it's made moves as being such a large progressive megachurch with all these celebrities coming in and being inclusive of LGBT folk and being inclusive of people of all racial and ethnic identities which is neither of which are true through their actions and you can say that you are inclusive of everybody that you don't stand for injustices and that you love everybody. But as long as you as an institution, as a church with so many white people don't include and hire black indigenous people of color into your leadership, as long as you don't allow them to have an actual voice in your theological teachings, and as long as they don't have a place where they can say, this is our church, we are ethnically, racially, culturally 
recognized here and not just in a large ambiguous swath of racially ambiguous people, then it's still, again, a church that is subject to the pervasiveness of a white supremacy that we already are in the foundation of. So if you know that the country is built upon white supremacy and those premises, and you can... And, and white becomes normalized, which is another definition of white supremacy is to be that white is normal and everything else is not normal that, that was alluded to earlier. But, and you continue to normalize that, is that not white supremacy also? It's normalized by, and, and even the language that we use, and I use the same word you did, but uh, uh, if, uh, if uh, black indigenous people of color are allowed to be in leadership, right? So it's that idea that we even get to allow them, right? That we have the right to allow them rather than to like humbly say a wrong has been done and we have to figure out a way to fix it. Yeah. I mean, this is, I I feel like going back to February, March of last year, when it felt like everyone on social media was suddenly not racist. You know, I remember that, remember the morning we all woke up and everyone had black squares uh, on their Instagram. And then, and then everyone got the text saying, don't put those up there. And then there was confusion and, and there was this chaos, right? It, this, uh, I believe the term of white defectorship. I'm, I'm not one of those white people. The progressive, and I would, I would say I'm progressive, but my work has to be to look at what it is I would love to demonize in another person. I would love to put my racist tendencies and assumptions and beliefs on another white person who voted differently than I did, who believes and has had different experiences than I've had. I would love to do that. But the reality is, is as a Christian, uh, I have to turn that mirror this projection I want to throw at uh, maybe a more conservative individual or group, I have to turn that around and I have to look at myself. And that that's how I think that might be the tendency really of both. If there's two sides here, that's the tendency of both sides. But for the progressive white American church, there is that tendency to scapegoat the other half and displace. And then what's the need of Christ? What is the need of the incarnation if we can just sacrifice our brother and our sister and they can carry our sins? As a progressive person, as a human, as a white male, I have to look inward. I have to look at myself um, and I've got I've to be open to learning and not, not being at a place of, oh, I've arrived. I've, I've figured it out. I want to not disagree with you, Michael, but I want to sort of throw that back at you, okay? So... If you aren't pointing out the sins of other white people and their white supremacy, that means I got to do it. And that's what they're used to, right? And so who's going to do it if you're if white people aren't going to do it? That's a great point. Uh, I think that, yes, this is the other side of it, right? This is, if there's maybe two prongs here, there's the, there is the uh, being, I guess, tenaciously self-reflective and continuing to press forward and to hold accountable our, our communities, particularly our, our faith communities, to engage and to, and, and to also reflect and to, and to be people who, who hold others accountable. I mean, I think this term accountability is so lost, right? But it, but it really is uh, calling people 
and kind of cutting through the, the persona and the, and the facade that we put out and looking inward to see, okay, where not only individually, what are our beliefs, but what are our structures? Why do we only have men on our pastoral staff? That's not just sexism, that's racism too. It's, it is an othering. It is a theology of supremacy. And so, yes, there has to be this two-pronged approach of self-reflection and accountability in our communities. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Yeah, I think it's it's difficult to find as um, white people. I am white passing and I, you know, was kind of raised in a very white evangelical culture. And so when it comes to my own education, it's it takes time to, I think, figure out what is our role in when we need to turn to other people for direction and when that other people means books, podcasts, lectures, and what times is it um, the questions that we ask our friends, whether our white friends or our friends of color. And it's gonna, it's gonna be a, a constant journey. But thank you guys. Uh, that was, that was my, most, my most question I was most excited for. Okay, so next, the next question is kind of more like tangible steps. What is the church's role in ending white supremacy? What, do, how do we, where do we go from here, especially um, for white Christians? Get white authors out of Bible studies. White people love to go to a Bible study after church service or their small groups or their home groups, and it is always centered around white authors and white ideas and we have all heard those white ideas already um they're spoken at the pulpit they're in our worship songs they're in our bible camps they're in all these other facilities that we engage in as white christians and there's a like first the choice has to be made if you want to stay comfortable in your white american church and your white american faith or if you don't, that's the first step is that you have to make that decision. And it sounds easy, but it's not. I have been in so many humbling conversations where I say something and all of my friends look at me and they go, no, Hannah can attest to this. Um, I went from having an all white friend group to being the only white person in my friend group and I said the wrong thing a lot, a lot. And my friends were so gracious to sit down with me and say, no, <laughs> here's where you're wrong. And they guided me. It was not their job to educate me, but they were so gracious in doing so. And the first step is you have to be willing to humble yourself, not do the pity party of, oh my goodness, I am the worst white person ever. I'm so sorry. I'm racist. Oh no. Um, you do have to admit that you're racist and you have to humble yourself. Um, don't like take on that shame and like label yourself with it, but you need to humble yourself and then put in the work. You have to humble yourself and then put in the work. It's that simple step, but it's really hard and it really hurts because then you have to deconstruct your entire faith because all of a sudden Jesus is not this sweet, calm, white guy that we're used to seeing. And he is a radical brown man that came to save us from our sins. And that whole thing changes. And all of a sudden you're not in that position of power and you have to sit down and you have to listen. And so that tangible step is humble yourself and make that choice to actively 
not fully remove white voices from your life because they're always going to be there but when you have the choice to choose the authors of color listen to the podcast led by black and indigenous people and do that to make those choices because you're always going to hear the white voices but you have to actively choose to listen to people of color I struggle to think of any tangible steps that don't first start with looking to the more intangibles and looking inward as well as upward towards God first and foremost. Because this is a God of every nation, every tongue, every person of every ethnic cultural background that has ever been on this planet. And if we look past these church walls that keep us segregated from one another, and if we acknowledge that this is a God and this is a Christ of all of us, that we are commanded to love and we are commanded to love everyone around us, specifically and especially even the oppressed and the marginalized in our societies, then the tangibles would fall into place. And I think the real struggle is looking to those intangibles first, to know that we have to look at God first before our church buildings, before all of our theologies, before all of our theology, theologies of supremacy, as Michael said. So the church is really uneducated when it comes to this subject. And, you know, Christian colleges and university are, are just about as bad, usually. So the whole thing is like, you have to hear stories from people who are different than you constantly, right? You have to understand the world according to other people's experiences who have not uh, held white normalcy as um, their standard. So I've, I've got a little, we have a little dog. He's about this big. He's kind of a Maltese mix. And, you know, if I get up in the middle of the night, you know, and he's on the floor, he knows Hey, when the big guy comes walking to here, you got to run, right? Get out of his way. And he knows my moves, right? So people of color know white people's moves, right? But but I don't understand, you know, the dog. I don't understand, you know, and I can never be an expert on the dog stuff, but he's an expert on my stuff. So for white people to learn this, they have to listen to the experts. And that's the people who have been having to get out of their way and read things that um, may not be uh, uh, as helpful, but because they're the, you know, the things that were demanded by white professors or white people or white Bible studies or whatever that was, you know, that's what you've had to do. And so the experts are not white people. The experts are the people who uh, have been the um, oppressed by white supremacy, white normalcy, white privilege. And so the first step really is listening. And it takes a lot of listening. And still, the tendency uh, for white folks is to jump in and try and fix it, right? Well, there's that old thing of like, we're in control so we can fix it. Now, the, there has to be a transfer of power to people of color who can help. Uh, and, and, and then they will allow white people as junior partners to begin to fix things. But the experts are the people of color, not the white folks. I just want to add on to that in terms of part of how the jumping to solutions for white folks plays out is that it bypasses the spiritual practice of lament, which is actually like sorrow and grief over wrongs um, and facing those fully. And we have a faith that says that we can freely face 
wrongs because of what Christ does, right? Because of Christ's work of making all things new. And yet we can be the most resistant and the most defensive against owning, owning collective wrong, or even having a concept of collective wrong. And then I think in addition to making space for listening and lament, um, it's making space for repentance and restitution. So one of the stories that I love in scripture is the story of Zacchaeus. And that when 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 Zacchaeus is confronted by Jesus with, with right, the way he's been cheating and wronging and financially benefiting um, from oppression, his response is not like shame or oops, my bad, right? Like it's actually, I am going to, I am going to make myself poor in order to make right what has been made wrong. Like, which to me feels like a picture of that uh, giving up of power and of taking a junior apprentice role in that process. So the good news is we have, we have examples in, of, in scripture of folks who do that, who follow Jesus in that way that we can learn from as well and put into practice. My next question is how have you personally, whether it was like an in-person experience between you and another person or things that you've seen in the media, how, like, what have you seen or experienced white supremacy in Christian spaces, whether it's kind of a bigger, more obviously white supremacist moment or maybe something more subtle? Where have you seen that in Christian spaces? At this point, I, I see it, I see it everywhere and it, and it, it, this white centeredness is so it's so othering it, it's almost uh it's unwelcome to um really even uh parts of of me that are not necessarily uh supreme so to speak um i will say i watched at a church i was a part of every person of color leave that church over the course of about three years watched um, a few of my uh, queer brothers leave the effects. It's uh, I think uh, maybe one of Mesetes's uh, previous guests mentioned this, talking about death by a thousand paper cuts. And what, you know, I, I think that's that's what the maybe more progressive experience in the church does is it slowly devalues the experience and the reality of people of color to the extent that. They're, the only option really is to conform and assimilate, uh, smile, or 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 to leave and and to find a new community. So it's it 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 really is everywhere, right? I mean, there isn't a part of for in my experience. There's very few moments if a church is unconscious of its its racial identity, it will be infused in from from the greeters to the benediction, and that's how deep it is. That's how deep it goes. And so I guess even kind of blending it with this last question, right? The first step is a step. Uh, it's to have conversations with white leadership, if that is the context, and to begin a dialogue that has some action steps, but moves the needle a little bit. There's, of course, the giant white supremacist signs that you could see of like the KKK posing in front of Jesus Save signs. But I think one thing that I have seen in every predominantly white Christian institution that I've ever been a part of is the tokenizing of the people of color that are involved. We've seen this in, if you look at any predominantly white church, um, their website, you're going to see the three families of color that attend that church. You can look at George Fox's website and you will see 
the same students of color that are on the website. You can look at any small private Christian school and you'll see that. And that is, people would say, oh, well, that's not white supremacy. Like you're showing, you're not just showing the white kids. And it's like, no, we're bragging that we're, we're bragging that we're not just white, that we are diverse, that we allow people of color in this space, that we can bring people of color into this space, which is, again, the white supremacy that we are allowing this as white people, or we cultivate a space as white people that people of color feel comfortable in, which is the exact opposite narrative of what needs to be happening. So yeah, that's one of the very subtle ones that might get overlooked. There's a whole range of things that I've seen in the different forms that they've taken, whether it's ignorance, flippant racist comments or systemic support. I mean, anything from a white pastor at the small private Christian school that I went to, he taught there and I was in his class. It was, I don't know, ninth grade or something. And he tried to get all of us to say the N-word or missions work being so heavily hammered into the Christian psyche of calling and how we as American Christians, specifically white Christians, have to go to all of these developing um, countries, primarily non-white countries, to help them and to enlighten them and to evangelize them, to bring them out of the darkness into the light. Or the Christian groups that raised $500,000 for Kyle Rittenhouse over the summer. And all these things, like subtle things all the way to, I mean, systemically and communally helping and aiding white supremacists. And there's a whole range. Part of the story that I carry just within my personhood is that on my mom's side of the family, I'm the great granddaughter of a um, Pentecostal lady preacher at the turn of the 20th century um, who was preaching in Kansas as a single woman and then as a young married woman, but who had no problem um, marrying right the good news that she believed she was preaching with overt white supremacy that she taught her children. That was That's part of the legacy um, that I live with. And on my dad's side that I'm the daughter of a Korean adoptee, my grandmother survived uh, colonization in Korea, right? And then American imperialism in a war to bring my dad into the world. And so those two things meet, those two stories meet in, in who I am. Um, and I think there's still ways that I am unpacking what I grew up with learning in the church that, uh, again, the normalcy of whiteness and that my dad and his Koreanness and the part of that that I inherited was the, again, it was the elective, right? It's what you can learn on the side if you're interested in exploring that, but it's not canon. It's not the thing that we're going to talk about. Um, I think I was in my early thirties before I ever saw an Asian American woman, a Korean American woman preach. And that was such a powerful, a powerful experience. So that's some of the way that I've, it was the story that I grew up with about what was normal in my church settings that then I've seen Right, I experienced on a, on a personal level, but then also on the larger systemic systemic level. So for me, there are too many instances <laughs> um, because this is something I've been speaking up about for a long time. But I've lost a job at a Christian university because of my stand against white supremacy. So I've been fired. 
I've been fired at by my neighbors. I've had to lose a house and uh, move because of it. And it, it's cost me and my family a lot over the years. There's a cost to this. We shouldn't be fooling ourselves at all to think that there's not a cost to standing up against the predominant force of the culture. And uh, so we've had to pay the cost, but we've also seen a lot of advances. Uh, even here at this university, uh, we've seen some advances that um, they weren't here 10, 12 years ago, 12 years ago when I first came in. 2009, I presented naively a uh, curriculum change for the general curriculum for to the uh, diversity committee on the uh, whiteness studies. Uh, the idea that every uh, sophomore should, should do this class on whiteness studies taught by a white person and a person of color. You know, I found out real quick that I was naive to think that that was uh, just going to be accepted like that. So um, I'm glad that things are happening now and I've seen some changes here, but, you know, we still have a long way to go. So, so I have one more question before we go into our Q&A time. How do we approach conversations about white supremacy? both in subtle ways and big ways. How do we approach those conversations with Christians who don't believe it exists or don't see it in the more subtle ways or think it exists, but not, not in their church? How do we approach those conversations? I think we're going to, first of all, need to get out of the way our belief that to be Christian is to not have any kind of animosity or to have something that actually even can't even be reconciled with that kind of person. There has to be, uh, this is this is getting into what justice and mercy require. So for the for the person who is unwilling to even believe that it exists, I, I don't, I, it has to be confronted at every turn possible. And you can't be friends with them maybe. Because <laughs> if, uh, if your end goal is to have some sort of harmony, if your end goal is harmony, then then, then you've got the wrong end goal. If we're talking about conversation with someone who is open, then it is it is the movement of accountability that uh, is both, again, continues to reflect and does not project my own racism onto someone else, continues to reflect on my own self, but also um, is uh, holding accountable those in my community, uh, then you have something. So uh, yes, to get out of the way, this this desire for harmony. Uh, churches, one of the one of the racist structures of church, is uh, of the white American church, is this sense that um, uh, the customer is always right. Um, it reflects our economic structure as well, right? How many, how many people have been to a church and you have no idea what its history is? It just has a really cool name. And every time you go there, the music's playing and everyone's happy. You have, you have to be able to uh, upset the waters and let them stay upset and maybe even know when it's time to leave. Uh, but that, because that's what it requires to, to speak up on behalf of our black and brown brothers, brothers and sisters our queer brothers and sisters, because they're the ones that will, will take the brunt of it and will leave quietly. I, uh, one of the native activists I follow on Twitter, I wish I could remember her name, it's escaping right now, but I saw she tweeted something last week that said, the work I do is about telling the truth because I believe telling the truth is loving. To tell the truth is to, that's how you can be a loving person in the world. And so 
engaging with white friends and family members who do not believe white supremacy exists, continuing those conversations, that's a way that I get to be loving um, by staying in those conversations. I think that's that people experience that differently, right? Like that's there's not a one size fit all for that, but that is white people's work is to tell the truth to our friends and family. And the other thing that I've thought about Again, I'm the mother of young kids. And so I watch a lot of kids' movies. And there's a scene in Moana that I think is this picture of what it looks like to engage with folks who are operating from a place of fear, right? And shame or insecurity. So in the in the story, there's this kind of lava monster that has had her heart stolen. And when Moana gets to the end, the story is not that she conquers, right? This lava monster by chopping her down or what you know whatever violent thing could happen she looks at her and says this is not who you are like something was taken from you and this is not who you are this is about restoring something and the reality is that whiteness is a construct in this culture that was about consolidating power and so white people coming from Europe gave up their sense of ethnic identity, let those things go for the sake of consolidating power and having access to land and money. And so there's something that's lost in that. There's a delusion in saying, I'm going to choose that over having a different identity. And so I think some of the conversation is moving beyond the fear and the shame that is often the first like level of defensiveness we meet and actually saying, what, is, what needs to be restored so that something else is possible? I think there's something that sort of supersedes the racial conversation, and that is to just talk to people, and especially people who are supposed to be followers of Jesus. To me, racism is most often exhibited by indifference, right? Indifference to the plight of other people who are different than yourself. And so I think to speak to that culture of indifference, that, hey, you can't just be indifferent. That's white privilege, by the way, if you're white. But that culture of indifference that you don't need to do anything about anybody else's problems or, you know, maybe that's one way to talk to people is to to break through that idea of that just privilege of, you know, and there's American privilege and there's wealth privilege and there's education privilege. There's all these privileges we have, but we're not allowed to do that to be good human beings on earth. It, you just can't sit back and be indifferent to to the, you know, everything might be fine for you but it's not for everybody else. And that's not okay. I'm going to say this as a white person talking to other white people. Um, when you're addressing the conversation of race, it's not a time to heed the, take your, the log out of your eye before you go after your neighbor's speck, because I feel like those things need to happen simultaneously because you will always be taking the log out of your eye when it comes to white supremacy in the church. And when it comes to unlearning those um, complacencies and all of that. People that don't believe that racism or white supremacy exists in the church, is they're not going to listen to you when you go to them and you tell them, here are all this, here's all the examples of it. They can justify their way out of it. They can use scripture to justify it. What has worked best in my personal experience is telling people your own experience with your own racism and your own white supremacy in the church. Um, because if you go up to somebody, they're going to get defensive. They're going to think that you're trying to get them to admit their racism and absolutely no one wants to admit their racism. So you have to admit your racism. And I've done this and it 
it really hurts to be in those spaces, especially if it's somebody that you admire and respect and you're gently correcting or educating and you have to like look them in the eye and say, no, I'm, I'm also like, I am a racist. You don't accuse them because that's not productive. That's not going to be a productive conversation. But if you admit that you have been racist, that you have engaged in the systems of white supremacy in your church, they're going to relate to that as well. Even if it's not like an overt thing, but if you talk to any white evangelical Christian and you say, I also went on a short-term missions trip and here's why that's racist, they can also most likely in some capacity relate to going on a missions trip to a country that didn't need it, to a country that had all of the resources to do those, to create and to build. But humbling yourself and admitting your own racism and not going into it as I'm going to cure this person of their white supremacy because you can't do that because I'm never going to be cured of my white supremacy. I will always benefit from white supremacy and those systems that are in place. I always will. And I will always be unlearning my own racism that has been indoctrinated in me and since I was pushed into preschool. But if engaging in those conversations and admitting your own racism and white supremacy, those conversations will start to be productive. They will not be productive if you go into it as here's what I've learned and here's how you can also learn it. You have to admit your own racism and white supremacy. Y'all, I just want to highlight and say our thanks to an amazing group of panelists. Uh, One of the things that I appreciate about Mathetes is you know, even in looking at hard topics where folks might agree and do agree on some things, there's still a wide variety of difference um, in terms of even how do we approach. So we may agree on some things, but then how do we approach our our response in other things? And we're going to move and shift into our, the kind of the next phase of what we what we do here as, as part of Methete. So those of you who you know have, have this been to multiple ones, you kind of know this rhythm. Uh, those who are new and uh, with us, uh, this is a, the part where we try where we open up the dialogue uh, to our broader audience. We have a lot of folks and uh, Zoom is a tricky, tricky space. And so there's a few things that I want to kind of remind folks of as we move into this time and space. Um, one, we do welcome folks to be able to speak up in this group if you choose. Part of what we do here, though, is be able to have genuine dialogue with one another. But again, just a few ground rules um, in these space, you know, uh, we're going to ask that folks use I statements um, when you address someone, you know, it is not you did this or you said, you know, but when this was said, this is how I felt or, you know, talk about one's personal experience versus trying to generalize that experience onto other folks. Um, we're also going to ask you to, to frame in terms of a space of inquiry and inquisitivity. We're, we're going to try to move away from these kind of dogmatic uh, places where, again, that I think that posture of humility and learning gets lost at times. So if we can frame things in a way of, you know, curiosity and wonderment, um, I think that would be helpful to our, our dialogue. Outright attacks on our on folks, on either each other, or on panelists, um, will be the quickest way to have our administrator um, bump you off. And I'm just going to be really, 
really, really honest about that. Kindness, clarity is kindness. And this is our, our very clear statement that if we start to, again, we can challenge one another in terms of our ideas and ideology, but if we start to attack the character and the and the personhood of, of someone, that will be your quickest ticket out of, of our space here. So first off, I got a question um, a couple minutes ago that I think would be a really good place to start. It's, it says that um, it was suggested earlier in the evening to get rid of white authors. Is it necessary to completely eliminate white voices to embrace white supremacy in the church? I think that probably meant to erase white supremacy in the church. Can they not still exist, but like on a lower scale because it can come across as maybe anti-white or create a bigger divide? I would think that it is a good idea, especially if you have been listening to white voices your entire life, which I have, to, to put those on the back burner for a while. If you've heard them consistently and constantly, for the entirety of your life and that has shaped your framework you have those white voices in the back of your head you have that point of view and you have that perspective and as i have learned that it's time for me to kind of take those out of my life for a while because i i, I know the perspective and i've heard the same white perspective over and over and over again and in my own journey of dismantling uh, white supremacy in my own life, my own behavior, and working towards anti-racism, it has been necessary to take those voices out in order to allow voices of color to be louder in my life. When should white people stay and keep fighting for change? And when should they leave? Especially in situations of being a part of a Christian institution where there's continued where there's there's uh, financially incentivizing even the oppression or neglect of um, Black, Indigenous, and people of color. Primarily, there is, might not be a question of um, completely. I think that there is there is a sense of choice uh, here, but I think uh, I think it's absolutely a choice. However, there comes a point I think when when you're working within an institution, uh, higher education church institution, whatever that is, where it is so, uh, it goes so far against, you know, what we stand for uh, in terms of fighting for equity and inclusion of others, uh, that it really becomes uninhabitable for, for life. And, uh, and so I think there's many ways you could think about, okay, when's the right time? If, you're, if your formation is, and, um, and the work you're doing is taking you beyond uh, maybe if we're sticking with, with the church here, if it's taking you beyond where that church is even willing to step, uh, that might be a good sign. But it's, it's, a, it's also about staying connected to those avenues and those, and those relationships in a way that you can continue uh, to have those hard conversations. So, yeah, I would, that's what I would add there. So I think there's really three places uh, change that you can make. One is from the inside, sort of biding your time and pushing where you can and trying to make uh, incremental change. That's one way people do it. Um, another way people do it is that they, they push harder until they uh, either can't stay anymore or they get told to leave. And then you have a choice as to whether you want to push from the outside in. And I think those are the three positions of uh, change agents that, uh, and in, 
you have to decide when's the right time for you. What's the cost to you? What's the cost to your family? What's the cost to your mental health? Um, what's the cost to your, um, you know, just uh, count the cost and, and make those decisions based on what you can do. Becomes, uh, there also can become a point when you realize there's nothing more I can do. It's probably time for me to leave. Ooh, we just got a great question. Let's hear more about how missions trips could be considered racist and maybe how they can encourage white supremacy. Going into college, my entire idea was that I wanted to change the narrative of short-term missions trips. And then I realized that short-term missions trips probably shouldn't exist in general. There is a lot more need for the money that you spend traveling on plane tickets, on buying your t-shirts that are appropriate for missions trips that can be directly sent and are going to do a lot more good. When you go to Mexico or you go to Guatemala or you go to Africa, there are a few things that happens. One of them is you are taught how to build things by the people that live there, by the by the natives and by the people of the community. You do not bring anything of value to those building projects. Um, I know of one down in Mexico that they have a building that when a team comes in, they take down the building. And when a new team comes in, they rebuild the building because there is no use for a team of ignorant white people that are well-meaning, there's no use for them. They need the money um, to further education, to further things there. Second, you could also argue, oh, but the kids cried when I left or um, I formed bonds there. I, I get it. I've been on those trips. What happens is when you leave a two-week missions trip from an orphanage that you have worked with, you are actually psychologically messing with those orphans abilities to form bonds and attachments groups of people coming in and out because they can afford it and it looks good on the instagram stories like damages children it hurts children it ruins their ability to form attachments for it causes a lot of problems so when you're pouring your money into flying to these countries and to do things that look good, what it's helping is us on the mission trip. It helps me feel good about myself because I went down and I played with some kids and I got dirty and I didn't shower for a long time and I reconnected with God. But what I'm leaving down there is a project that probably wasn't needed if it was completely donated the locals don't have a real attachment for to it and will probably sell it for cash this has happened many times I'm very familiar with the idea of if you go down there and you give somebody a new house with a door teams go back and the door has been sold the roof has been sold because they don't need a new building they need a goat <laughs> they need this to like stimulate the economy and do self-sustainability. So sending these teams down to build a house, it does not go towards self-sustainability, which is actually what's really needed. So while those trips make the Americans and the white people that go down there feel really good, 
it actually damages the countries and the rural communities that you're going to help. I've heard too many accounts and stories of missionaries essentially bribing the peoples of the nations that they go to into conversions, not letting them have the resources that they are offering unless they promise to convert, and mistreating, demeaning the native peoples of those countries, and just in general, not showing any semblance of Christ-like behavior or love to these people. And my issue with mission work as pertains to being a racist um, system is very much rooted in how it's historically been, how it historically has been founded, and how it has historically demolished and eradicated the cultures of the nations that they go to. I can speak from my own heritage as a Vietnamese person that the only reason that the Vietnamese language um, uses the Latin alphabet is because of the French missionaries that came hundreds of years ago to essentially eradicate and switch over the alphabet so that the Vietnamese people would not be able to read and understand our own literature so that we would be able to better convert to Catholicism. And this has happened in other parts of um, Southeast Asia, other parts of Africa. And I mean, if you think about missions work, inherently, it is assuming that the version of Christianity that missions people have is the correct one that needs to be disseminated to the rest of the world. And, and that could even go further and to say that Christianity is like the only religion that is even valid or should be able to manifest God in other ways. And I think that's a very naive and entitled belief to assume that Christianity, even white Christianity, is the only religion where God can be seen and understood. And to formulate a system where you deliberately try to take people from their own cultural heritages and transform them into your own is just not loving. It's really historically awful, I think, and I can't justify it. So I want to speak to the other side of that just a little bit. So as a Native person and a missiologist, my degree is in intercultural studies, but it's practically missiology. I, there's, there's probably no people group on earth who missions has damaged more than Native Americans. And I'd be willing to argue that with anybody from around the world. The, when I was pastor in a Native American church, you know, the first few years were awkward having the mission groups come in and do their thing and feel good and, and do what, you know, uh, Roar and Jeanette have described and all that sort of thing. And so we said, okay, we're going to fix this. They have resources that we need because we've been disadvantaged as a community. How do we get those resources and treat each other with mutual respect? And, and how do we go about converting them, right? And so we worked out a way to do that. And, uh, you know, long story short, they converted. Our people felt empowered. And uh, a lot of good things were done uh, in those last few years of, of learning how to do it right. And since then, 
I've developed, uh, if you've ever, uh, anybody who's taken my missiology courses, Dr. Woodley's 10 missiological imperatives. That, in other words, there's 10 things you have to have in your attitude before you can go on missions and you have to learn. And the first thing is that, that realize that, that Jesus is at work where you're at um, and they have something to teach you, right? Um, and so I, I wouldn't, you know, personally throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think everything that's been said is true. I think it's worse than what we've said. It's been uh, awful in Native America. And yet I think there's a way to do it, but it's very tricky. And the first thing is probably to find a cultural guide uh, who sort of uh, understands it all from both sides to, to be able to help lead you into that. It's definitely not something that a white person should should go, well, I'm in charge of this mission trip, right? That It's not going to work that so way. So there was a kind of a comment that came up earlier that I thought would be really interesting to talk about. It says, my thoughts on racism have always crystallized uh, around the pure distillation of Christ's message of charity, the issues of power sharing and recognition of people of people's disappear in the pursuit of seeing people entirely as, as all children of God. Definitions of white versus people of color disappear when we think of everyone as God's children. Running the concept of universal love and acceptance through an institution quickly turns into divisions that are considered that are just popular or politically correct. So um, that's not necessarily a question, but I kind of wanted to open it up specifically to our panelists, to our people of color. Why is it important for us to, or is it, is it important for us to be able to acknowledge white people versus people of color? And how does that change or not change our concept of our understanding as being God's children? The issue of colorblindness does come up a lot. And something I, that I've seen recently is that when, when you convince yourself to not see color, you don't see patterns. And if you don't see patterns, then you can't truly, even from a Christian perspective, seek justice and love mercy, because what is there to be just about? What is there to be merciful towards? And I'm thinking of what Dr. King has said in one of his speeches about how in the kingdom of God, in the loving community that we search for and we will achieve in God, there is no distinction. Yes, we are all children of God. There is no distinction between white, black, brown, Asian, what have you. However, we still have people saying white power and throwing up white symbols, white power symbols, and being violently racist against those in the body of Christ. And if we cannot acknowledge those things, then we cannot effectively love all of the children in the body of Christ. You can't erase history, right? You can't deny the fact that as a Native person in the life that I've lived is different, quantitatively different than a white person of my same whatever um, education, you know, social status, etc. And if you're not willing to understand that history of my people, then you really can't love me because you're only loving if you're white and you've been raised in a white normalized atmosphere, then really you can't help draw me into that space. And so to try and deny that space is to really deny me as a person. 
Awesome. We had another question about both in the RSVP um, opportunities for people to ask questions and in the chat now, there have been scriptures that people have used to defend white supremacy. So what are some scriptures that we can turn to when we are trying to fight white supremacy? I very much enjoy preaching Luke 4 verses 14 to 30. It's the story of Jesus's first sermon in his hometown in Nazareth as Luke recounts it because Jesus starts his ministry by calling out the ethno-nationalism of his own community. And it results in what the passage says, they're so angry by the end of that as he calls out God's goodness to folks outside of that community throughout the story of their people that they're ready to throw him off a cliff, right? And he just kind of walks away. So that, right, it's it's not a passage about white supremacy, but it's a passage about the posture of when, of what happens in groups of people when some folks are othered or considered outsiders and hear the story that God says, actually, those people are brought close. And how do we respond to that? You know, I, I think that uh, this, even the idea of, of really using scripture is problematic, right? What uh, I think that one of the one of the reframing uh, things we have to do is understand how we read scripture, because if if it's something that is meant to uh, uh, posture a belief, that's that's still coming out of this theology of of supremacy, uh, seeking to be over and above. And so I think that this idea, the hermeneutic of the shadow and what I something that I've kind of came up with, but this idea that scripture is something that allows us to see what we don't see or what we would rather not see. Um, if you want to know what a church's ultimate beliefs are, look at what you don't see. Who do you not see? What do you not hear? And therein lies uh, what that church ultimately believes. So scripture should be turning us toward what isn't seen, towards those who are not seen in our community. And in what I've found, what I've discovered essentially by um, experimentation as a pastor, particularly with white men, is there has to be spaces for those white men to become conscious of who they are. If, if, if uh, because whiteness is such, is so centered, and so normalized, it's the standard. Um, oftentimes, white men uh, are very unaware of almost all of their identities. And so, so uh, there have to be these spaces that actually pull us out of that sense of normalcy, that sense of centeredness uh, to look at what we don't see in ourselves. I think it's almost impossible to really start seeing who and what we don't see in our communities. If we have absolutely, we as in white men, I would say white people in general, if we have no concept of what we don't see in our own lives, when we're unaware of our identity, at that point, we can start to return to some scripture. Because other than that, I think scripture becomes a bit of a uh, patchwork. It becomes this thing we use that doesn't dissect us. It doesn't cut us to the to the bone right and uh and so i would say even pulling away from scripture in terms of a use and moving it towards somewhat of a mirror to see what's behind us that we have repressed or that what we have denied in ourselves and in our communities awesome thanks guys okay so i have one more question here what could the church look like and behave once it is rid of white supremacy what 
are the, the possibilities of the church once if we are able to conquer this sin. I think it's really hard to grasp how systemic racism and white supremacy is in the church. Because if you think about it, like you go to church and okay, but the church is run like a business. The church benefits from capitalism, which is a white man created thing. And we've seen our churches go from being like places of worship to where we're having sermons continuously like every other month of financial giving and making sure that your lights stay on in the church and if you're part of this community you're going to be focused on this and a lot of the church has become less focused on following Jesus and more focused on the church building and the very specific church community that you are a part of and not the bigger mission of the church as what the church could look like, I think that is also equally as hard to grasp because the church hasn't looked like this since Jesus. Honestly, there's been no, we've, from Jesus, we've continuously moved away from looking like Jesus, which is a weird way of saying I don't know if we're ever, we're never going to get to that. It's that sort of like deconstruction when the church dismantles itself and separates itself from the state, I think that it could, again, look like the mission of Jesus that we read about in the Bible and not, and not the mission of Jesus that the church teaches us, but the mission of Jesus that's actually in the Bible of Jesus sitting with the sick and eating with sinners and being with the people that everyone around him was like, because even the church in Jesus's day was the Pharisees being like, Jesus, what are you doing? Like the church has always been about power and itself. Jesus is not. Um, So I think, do I have a picture of what the church could look like? Of really like everyone sitting around holding hands, uh, singing Kumbaya. Uh, That's not what it would look like. Um, It would look like flipping flipping the tables in the church. But for that to happen, we have to look at the mission of Jesus and not what has just been preached from the pulpit our entire lives. Because what's being preached from the pulpit very often is an incredibly distorted version of what the Bible actually says and what the mission of Jesus actually says. And I would encourage everybody to like dig into that, look at the Hebrew meanings of words and look into that um, things because a lot of things do get lost in translation, but learning the character of Jesus and learning about the man who Jesus really was is definitely the first step in pursuing what the church could look like when we eradicate white supremacy. So I have this big vision, right, of the church. I, I don't know that I'll ever see it. I'm getting kind of old now, but but this big vision is basically of understanding the whole idea of the shalom community of creation that Jesus talked about, the shalom kingdom, uh, to understand what that means to uh, live in your community and repair everywhere that has been broken. And, you know, it starts actually, you know, on the very ground, uh, since every church in America uh, is on stolen native land. People died Genocide was committed, families were killed, children were killed, 
you know, uh, laws were, were made against it just because they were white and natives were native, right? So it, it has to begin at its roots, which is there, which would mean probably that most churches need to sell their buildings and give them to all the people who they've oppressed over the years in order to be like Jesus, in order to, to work in their communities and use that money that they spend on buildings and everything else, because they can meet in homes. Obviously, that's been done before. And, uh, and to use that to repair that gap, that breach, that place where um, shalom has been broken in their own communities. And of course, it has to start with reparations for the stolen land that, that is, it's, uh, these churches on. So it's a radical vision, um, but I think it's Jesus' vision. And so that's sort of what I tout around when I go and speak is that, you know, if you want to be like Jesus, it's going to cost you. Yes, what a great note to end on. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Thank you everyone so much for attending. Our official time is over. I just wanna say thank you again to all the panelists. Um, I am so, so grateful for you to take time out of your week to talk about such an important topic. And thank you everyone who attended for being willing to listen and learn graciously. I really, really appreciate that.